You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Oh, yeah, buddy. We are coming in hot on a Monday. I tell you what, I had a great weekend. It was gorgeous out. Spent a lot of time with the family. Man, I got to shoot my bow. I'm feeling really confident uh, with the gearhead. And uh, I guess we'll just we'll do the commercial right now. Go find a dealer that shoots gearhead, that sells gearhead bows, and test them out, man. I'm telling you right now, I am every time I, this bow has brought back the fun and excitement for me personally uh, for shooting archery, you know, becoming an archer, trying to be the best archer that I can be. Uh, And it helps when you have a kick-ass bow that is just, it's awesome. Uh, I absolutely love it. No hand shot, center shot design. I mean, I could go on forever and tell you everything about uh, Gearhead, but go visit gearheadarchery.com. Look into everything with this bow um the center shot shot design uh, their riser and how it's built and how it is dead in the hand it's forgiving uh, man it's just really really awesome innovation and technology that's been put into this bow it's different than anything else that is currently on the market and uh i think everybody needs to go shoot a gearhead bow please go do it and then let me know what you think now Today's podcast, our guest, Scott Bestel. Uh, a lot of people know him as an outdoor writer, uh, and he's written in Field and Stream. He's written for North American Whitetail, and that's actually where I met uh, Scott over the phone. And uh, he interviewed me for an article about Shipwreck, this buck that I had been chasing for several years. And uh, that's the first time we met. And then recently... I was flipping through the Field and Stream website, and uh, his name popped up on a couple early season hunting articles that I was reading, and I'm like, you know what? I need to get this guy on the podcast, and we need to talk about early season hunting strategy uh, and tips and tricks for early season hunting, and that's what today's podcast revolves around, uh, early season hunting strategy, early season hunting tips, tactics, and we go into a lot of detail on food sources. We go into a lot of detail on 
you know, strategy, tree stand placement, access. So be sure to have maybe a notepad handy. Take some notes and uh, or listen to the podcast over again because, uh, uh, you know, I, I definitely got some ideas rolling around in my head after talking with Scott. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. Again, go visit uh, gearheadarchery.com. And, man, I'm going to keep this intro short. Let's get into today's podcast about early season hunting strategy with Scott Bestel. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Scott Bestel. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Dan. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I tell you what, uh, like we discussed the other day, man, this cool weather has got me itching to get in the tree stand. It's crazy. It feels. It felt like September three weeks ago here in Minnesota. So yeah, it's. I think it's going to be kind of fever pitch by the time we open in a couple of weeks here. Right, right. And like we were talking about, it's. It's going to be what November first. It's going to be seventy-five, eighty degrees out. That's just the way it's going to work out. I, I just can <laughs> see it coming a mile away. Yep. <laughs> got to get real tight into the bedding at that point. Exactly. So. Before we get started, and I want to talk today about early season hunting, hunting tactics, hunting strategy with you. Uh, you've, you've been successful over the years um, in months like September and October, so I want to touch base with uh, with you on that. But first, well, throw some credentials at us. You're an outdoor writer, so who do you who do you write for? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm the Whitetails editor for Field and Stream magazine. Uh, I also uh, publish, you know, fairly widely in other national magazines. So um, I've been I've been uh, writing about deer for about twenty five, twenty six years, something like that. And I've been deer hunting since I was a little boy. It just kind of uh, like so many of us, you know, I I got started watching my dad and my relatives do it as a kid and uh, i couldn't wait to start and when i finally got my first buck at age 12 i was like yep i don't know what else life is bringing me but i'm being a deer hunter for the rest of it <laughs> just like that yep just like that i i knew uh you know it's funny i've i've lost girlfriends and i've changed jobs and i've done all kinds of crazy things just so i could keep chasing deer <laughs> yeah yeah i think uh if you're hardcore enough you you cross one of those bridges sometime in your life uh and i don't know if i'll ever get a new wife but i can tell you that uh and my i know my boss listens to this but if my job gets in between uh hunting and like me and hunting then there there might be uh there might be a problem might be some renegotiations going on (laughs) (laughs) absolutely a night shift or something yeah yeah that's true so I I want to talk a little bit about writing right off the bat, and this this just popped into my head, all right? You said you've been writing for roughly 25 years now, and when it comes to this – is, this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, when, I, when I go online or I see a magazine and you, and, it, and you have top 10 ways to kill a buck – Top five ways to kill a buck. Top ten. You know, these these titles of these articles are all about trying to, you know, everybody wants to kill a big buck. Everybody wants to kill a big buck. So for you, how how difficult 
is it? And maybe it's not difficult, but how difficult is it every year to come up with new new content to, you know, discuss in your writings about you know the end goal being how to kill a whitetail buck? Well, I tell you, if all if all I had to do is uh, deal with my limited knowledge, I'd have been done uh, many many years ago. <laughs> um, but I, one of the beauties of my job is I get to meet and talk to a lot of passionate deer hunters like yourself. And uh, it's funny, the, the wider your web grows that way, um, you just, uh, it's, I I'm always find myself learning and asking guys, you know, what do you do? And, you know, there's all, every great deer story that I've ever covered, there's always some little lesson in there. And um, I don't know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm passionate about whitetails and whitetail hunting, and I'm also a very curious person. And I find that uh, a lot of the, you know, the experts that I write about and have admired and revered for many, many years, it's a, it's a really fascinating common quality among those gentlemen and, and women is that the more they hunt, the more questions they have. And that's the thing I think why whitetail hunting is so so compelling and so appealing to so many people is, you know, it's not a cookie-cutter thing. And, you know, you kill one big deer, that doesn't mean you're going to kill the next big deer. And you kill ten big deer, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I want to kill this type of deer, and there's always some new challenge, and there's just so many questions. I mean, look at this critter that lives, you know, in the backyards of millions of people, and if killing a big, you know, you would think killing a big buck would be easy, and it's not. And anyone who's yeah. done it for a long time will tell you exactly the same thing. You know, a, a mature white-tailed buck is the most sought-after trophy in North America, and that, you know, that includes a lot of great big game animals like elk and bear and moose and all kinds of things, so... Um, it's just you can never quit learning about deer. So I, hopefully that translates into my writing that I'm curious, I'm eager for knowledge, and the people that I seek out are the ones that are saying, hey, I tried this new thing and it worked or it didn't work or I learned this. And Anyway, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dynamic and never-ending for me. Right. Yeah, I tell you what, that's one thing, um, doing what I do and being able to talk with guys who hunt from – you know, the north to the south to the southwest, you know, to right here in uh, the Midwest and, and, you know, low, low pressure, high pressure type scenarios. It's amazing what and what guys will do and what lengths they'll go to to get the job done, you know, whether that's plant hundreds of acres of food plots or, you know, go in four hours early on a high pressured public land hunt. You know, and sit there all day in freezing temperatures or or opposite, you know, sit there all day in extreme high temperatures just to get a glimpse and a potential shot at one of these animals. It's amazing how men become and women become obsessed with this. I, I agree. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I think it just goes to show again, you know, that power that deer have over us and uh and the challenge is never ending. I mean, you know, if you think you got it figured out, you you probably got another thing coming. <laughs> At least that's been <laughs> my experience. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Now, for for the listeners that may not know, me and you have a little history together. Um, man, I, I don't even know. I forget what year it was. I'm, I think 2011 or 10. I, or that not. was the one I came up with in my head when I was thinking about the shipwreck story. Yep. 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 So. You're you're somewhat good friends with Sam Calora, right? I've known Sam for years. Yep, 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 yep. So you know you know Sam, and uh, Sam was the guy who ended up killing Shipwreck, and 
So the story that you wrote was a little bit of, about me, who the guy who'd been chasing him for several years, and then a little bit about Sam, who ended up killing him uh, on on a neighboring property. So uh, when it comes to stories like that, uh, stories like shipwreck, uh, and let's leave the shipwreck story out of it, but are there any other types of or, or maybe an example that you can provide us of just a really cool story that has stuck with you uh, throughout your 25 years of writing? Oh man, there's so many good ones. The shipwreck story. I'm I'm going to talk about the shipwreck story. I'm over I'm overruling you on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I love the shipwreck story because it says so much about what makes deer hunting special for me. Um, is that you can go after a big deer like that deer, and you can, as you did, you know, make a passionate pursuit, and that deer can almost, you know, take over your life, but. If you're not lucky enough to kill it, and if your neighbor kills it, I mean, you were a gentleman enough and a sportsman enough to recognize that, hey, he got that deer fair chase. I didn't have my, you know, name tag on it, and you were big about, you know, how you treated the situation. And Sam uh, was the same. He shared the shared the success with you. And I tell you what, you know, you and I have been around this long enough to know that people can get pretty ugly about big deer sometimes. They can get possessive and. Yeah. territorial and you know it just pretty much acts like infants and uh that to me that's the that's the dark ugly side of of deer hunting and it doesn't have to be that way um right. these are wild critters and we're all after them with the same passion and hey man whoever gets them legal and fair that's we should all celebrate it and that's what i love about stories like about about shipwreck right and and one thing that really stuck out with me and of course i lived it was that I chased, I put my heart and soul into chasing this buck and I had, I definitely had my opportunities. Uh, I failed a lot. I learned a lot. And at the end of the day, no matter how hard you work, you still may not win or you still may not accomplish your goal, but the hardcore guys, the passionate ones like that year when Sam killed shipwreck, I think I was even more passionate and more ready for that following season so I could get out there and do it all over again. Yep. Yep. Neat. Well, that's, that's cool to hear. And it is, because a lot of guys, um, I mean, I've heard of guys that have done these one buck campaigns and they don't kill the deer and it's just like, you know, <laughs> it just knocks them for a loop. And it's, you know, uh, I think, you know, I can see why people get obsessed with deer. I've had a couple that have gotten under my skin that I want to really kill. And, uh, but, you know, you, you try to keep it in perspective that, yeah, I want right. this deer and I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, stuff to get him. But, hey, you know, at the end of the day, he's a wild critter and uh, I, my name tag is not him. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now let's transition a little bit. And for states like, I think Kentucky is already open. There's some other southern yeah. states I, I, I think uh, are open. Uh, Wisconsin is getting ready to open. When uh, When's opening day for Minnesota? We open the same day Wisconsin does, September 16th. Yeah, we're always, we're pretty much lined up that way mid-September about every year. Yep. Okay, so mid-September is opening day for a lot of uh, states and then transitioning into October 1st for Iowa and Illinois and, you know, some of those, uh, uh, some of the other Midwestern states, even even further south. 
And that's what I want to talk about today is early season hunting, early season strategy, um, and a little bit of the ins and outs uh, of how to maybe get a, get the job done uh, early season. Now, you have you've you've had success in September uh, throughout some of the years, even into early October. Now, we'll call that early season success. Yep. But what I want to do is. I always hear, uh, you know, everybody has their opinions and you hear the law of averages is kind of one of those things where, hey, you're never going to kill a big buck early season. Um, You know, you got to wait for the rut. You got to wait for these big boys to get on their feet. But before that happens, this there's this magic window in early season where some of these big mature bucks are still on their summer patterns and uh, are somewhat vulnerable. So let's touch on that once. When when you were successful on your early season hunts, what were some of the the key things that allowed you to be successful that time of year? Well, to me, there's a, there's a couple things that, that have to happen. One, if, if you've got particular knowledge of a big deer, obviously through, you know, long-range observation or, or scouting cameras, if you're able to pick up on, you know, you mentioned that late summer pattern, that's and that's critical to a lot of this early season success is that, you know, you get a deer that's regularly visiting, uh, well, an egg country, you know, a bean field or alfalfa field, you know, they can they can almost get on a train track, you know, on, on evenings when the conditions are right, it's like they're going to be there. But that, um, so that said, I mean, that, that deer is obviously highly vulnerable to the harvest if you hunt them smart. But that said, um, that window is closing really quickly. I mean, it, as you know, right now here in Minnesota, I mean, the beans are starting to dry down a little bit, not as attractive to deer. And, uh, you know, and other things happen. I mean, when our, when our archery season opens, our small game season opens. So, you know, we've got squirrel hunters in the woods. We've got ginseng diggers. You know, all of a sudden there's stuff happening in the whitetail world that wasn't happening just two weeks ago. And so um, you've got to kind of find a buck that's in a secluded spot where he's not going to get bothered by people. But if you can pick up on that summer pattern, they can be really, you know, they can be vulnerable. One of my best friends uh, lives in a town nearby, and uh, he starts on July 4th, uh, and he's out every evening glassing fields on the farms that he hunts, and he's killed some, well, he's, I think he's killed well over 30 P&Y class deer, and some of them are way above P&Y, and I, I bet you about half of those come in the first two weeks of season. Wow, and that blows my mind because I, I've never been able to hunt in Iowa that that summer pattern buck. I, I think that for me in the properties that I hunt, there's, there's that transition that happens somewhere yep. in late September. Uh, we all, we all know, and we, we've all seen it where the bachelor groups break up the, the antlers become hard and, uh, and there's like a re uh, a redistribution of bucks or the, the does tend to stay in the same spot from what I see because they call that home, all year round, but the bucks kind of, there's a little jostling, jostling for position and whatnot. So I agree. Yep. What are some of the conditions that a a hunter, a bow hunter needs to have for the stars to align and, and a big buck get on his feet in daylight in this, this late September, early October timeframe? 
Okay. Um, well, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, you do have to have some factors line up. And, and so, you know, I talked a lot about the summer pattern before, and, and I also said that, that you know, that window is closing really quickly for a couple of reasons. And one of the biggest is, is that food sources are changing. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, and, you know, very accurate observation. I mean, there is a there is kind of this, you know, redistribution of deer. I mean, the bachelor groups, it's like, a, you know, it's like the end of the football season and they're all heading home to, you know, take a little, and that's exactly what happens with deer. I mean, they're, you know, uh, especially when you've got a good mature buck component, you know, you've got deer, big deer that just, they don't want to be around each other all of a sudden because, hey, Bob over there is in hard antler and I just don't feel like fighting them very much, you know. So they go find their spots where they kind of feel comfortable. So what happens in this early season transition, in my opinion, is, You've got deer that are naturally relocating to kind of get away from each other. And then you've got food sources that are changing really quickly. Um, uh, around here, uh, I, in fact, I saw it just uh, within the last 10 days, that deer that were coming out to bean fields and alfalfa fields like clockwork, and all of a sudden our white oak acorn started to drop, and bam, I mean, you couldn't find a deer on a field to save your life. Um, so that that's another thing that's happening. And, and, you know, these bucks that were once kind of predictable, all of a sudden seem not as predictable, and, and what they've really done is they've just switched food sources. You know, they've moved the, their home core a little bit. They've also probably got some more sheltered food sources like white oak acorns or, or some other things that are happening. And uh, so it's you've got to kind of be on your toes to, you know, to keep up with that shift. Okay. Now, you mentioned something that I feel plays a huge role in early season uh, traffic, and that is – what you just said, the acorn drop. Um, last year, the farm that I that I spent most of my time on didn't have a big acorn drop. Very, very small one. This year, different story. Huge, huge acorn drop. And that just screws everything up, especially for the guy who's hunting field edges, um, trying to you know get a, a deer to come out to a cornfield or a, a, an alfalfa field or whatever. So... Let's talk a little bit about strategy for a scenario like like we just mentioned, and that is an early season hunt where the acorn drop is there. You know, one of these buffer year type acorn drops. Yeah, it's um, it's really it can be a real head scratcher. And I tell you what, I really didn't learn how to hunt acorns well until I actually started hunting the big woods in northern Wisconsin with uh, one of my really good friends who happens to be a logger. Uh, and Tom knows just a ton about trees. I mean, he's been cutting timber his whole life ever since he was in high school, and he's well into his 40s now. So anyway, he's, he's a big public land bow hunter and invited me up to hunt uh, many years ago, and we just started hunting, and a lot of it was early season hunts. And uh, I tell you what, I thought I knew something about scouting early season deer, and I didn't know squat until I started hunting with him <laughs> because we would just, he, you know, bless his heart, he's got an intimate knowledge of thousands and thousands of acres of public land, and we would just take off on these scouting jaunts in the middle, you know, start mid-morning and scout till mid-afternoon. And, I mean, we walked our tails off going from oak stand to oak stand to oak stand, finding which ones were hot. And, uh, man, I really, I really learned a lot about, uh, what, you know, what to look for in good, good oaks, uh, what, you know, which, which ones deer are hitting, which ones aren't as attracted to deer and the type of sign to look for for an early season ambush. So, um, uh, I can go into, into detail about that if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay. So, you know, it's really interesting. We, we're, I'll, I'll 
think about a September hunt that we had just um, two years ago, and we walked back in this remote logging road. There's a huge red oak sitting there. Um, there's up there. It's it's primarily red oaks of the of the odd white oak every once in a while, but mostly red oaks, which drop fairly early up there. Anyway, we came upon this red oak growing right next to the logging road, and I mean. You've been there before. You walk under one of these trees, and you just about got to watch that you don't, you know, skate across them like marbles. There were acorns everywhere. And so we're looking for, you know, I'm looking for deer tracks, and Tom's like, come on, let's go. And I'm like, you know, buddy, there's acorns everywhere here. There's got to be deer. And he goes, no, they're not. And I said, what do you mean, no, they're not? And he said, look at those acorns. And I looking at him like, well, yeah, what? He says, they've all got caps on them. And so I said, so what's the big deal with that? And he says, capped acorns. 85 to 90 percent chance it's rotten inside deer won't eat them until it's their last thing that they can eat i'm like wow. all right so i started and he goes go ahead and try them um, so we each picked up an acorn cracked them in, it, in our teeth and yep sure enough they're wormy inside and he said they will eat these in december when there's nothing else but he said right now there's a lot of, of other stuff so he said let's keep looking so we found another red oak quarter mile away almost no acorns under it but buck sign everywhere, deer droppings everywhere, and uh, he goes, this is it, this is the ice cream tree, and I'm like, okay, ice cream tree, <laughs> he said, yeah, these acorns, they're not capped, I mean, we found a few, just a handful laying around, and he said, you know, pop one of these open, and I did, and it's just pure white meat inside, perfect, and he said, these acorns taste better to deer, and they know where these trees are after years of living around them, and they will come to them, and so anyway, we started looking around, as I said, rubs everywhere, even on small trees, and he said, you know, we're sitting this tree tonight, and we did, and, and he shot and killed uh, like a 155-inch buck. Now, this is September in the big woods, and a 150-inch buck up there in public land, you know, lives through deer and wolves and hard winter. That's like a booner anywhere else. So that really, that one really opened my eyes. I mean, it was one of those deals where, you know, it's not just enough to find a tree that's dropping acorns. you got to find the tree that the deer like to eat the acorns yeah. from. Right. Now, from a terrain perspective, where was this acorn tree at? Because it's almost like you have to treat that particular – we don't think of oak trees – I mean, we 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 think of them as a food source kind of, but not the same way we think of like a food plot or a cornfield, right? Uh, right. So cause, because that is an enclosed, isolated food plot in the middle of the timber where – there's probably acorn trees all around doing exactly what you said, dropping all over the place. So how did you guys go about treating that particular tree? Cause that's what you're doing. You're hunting a particular tree. It sounds like, and how did you go about accessing that, that tree? Um, when did you go in? Well, that what one was, was the really, a, like? uh, yeah, I agree. And that it's, you know, you bring, you bring up an excellent point, Dan, that, you know, you, you have to treat, you know, when when you've got an oak tree that's dropping acorns in the middle of the woods, you have to go into food plot mode, you know. Okay, deer are going to approach this thing the same as they would a food plot, and I have to figure out where I think that's going to be and how I'm going to get in and out of here without spooking deer. And um, we lucked out a little bit on that tree because it was kind of, so there was a, a pretty solid block of timber within, oh, 60, 70 yards of that tree, but it was kind of set apart from the woods and that it was, growing out in a spot where it was just kind of grassy and brushy, and maybe that was the reason why it was dropping such good acorns is because it had good sunlight on it. But anyway, so that one was really pretty easy. Um, I We had another early September hunt just a few years before that where we found a very similar scenario, 
And, um, you know, we, we scout fairly aggressively, but then when we find a tree like that, we stop. And then we just start looking around because we know we've, I mean, we've found the honey hole. This is where deer are. They're eating, and they're probably not bedded very far away. And so we talk in nothing but a whisper. We start walking out trails just for a short distance and very quietly and, you know, kind of mindful of scent and trying to figure out, you know, A, where are deer bedding? How are they getting here? And how am I going to get in and out of here, you know, and set my stand without, without bumping them? So it takes a little takes a little head scratching and you, you know you just uh but you just have to use your basic you know deer hunting 101 i mean i gotta find out the wind direction and i gotta figure out which tree i can sit in and and probably just as importantly which trees i'm not going to get away with uh based on the sign that i'm reading but uh it you know it, it, it's a challenge and sometimes you're going to guess wrong but uh i i guess i'd rather guess wrong than sit at home and watch the packers <laughs> that's right now for for that example uh, how did, because deer have the bed travel corridor. Sometimes they have a staging area and then a food source and then back through that same kind of pattern. That's kind of a yep. typical pattern, but we're, so for this, these acorns, and, I, and I'm sure that wasn't the only time you hunted a specific tree. Are you hunting in that tree? Are you hunting right next to that tree? Or are you hunting the travel corridor to get to that tree or the staging area to get to that tree? Well, that's a great question. Um, and it's, I think it's a, one that you kind of have to solve for each setup. I guess ideally, ideally, I'm, you know, if, if it's like a no brainer, like, Hey, I know there's two trails coming in here and I can shoot to both of them from this tree. I'm going to set up there off the off of the food source itself, you know, so that I don't because um, you know there's going to be non-target deer that walk into that into that oak tree just like there are going to be if you're hunting a bean field or a food plot or or any other thing. So you've got to be mindful of not spooking those deer. So you know it's just kind of a it's just kind of a cutting it close kind of deal. I mean, if I if I think I can get by with sitting you know 40 50 yards off and still kill my buck, he might tip you off to that by leaving a nice little rub line on one trail that isn't on another trail. Um, but the other thing is sometimes you don't, you can't read that sign and you have to head your bets and say, hey, you know, when it comes down to fishing or cutting bait, I got to be able to shoot to that oak tree because I'm not positive where this deer is coming from. Um, and so you just, uh, it's kind of a dynamic situation. And the, the beauty of hunting that way to me is I don't, I am not relying on a stand that I've got set up. I've got a stand on my back and climbing sticks and I can pick any tree I want. And, uh, so it's kind of, you know, I can sit one tree one night and, you know, say, Hey, that wasn't the deal. And tomorrow night I'm going to be in this tree. And another basic tip that I feel is, is worthwhile for early season is it's always easier to go outside in than do the opposite. You know, you can, if you're not positive where the deer are coming from or what tree you need to be in, then set up off the action intentionally. And you might get lucky that buck might walk right by you, but you might just see things for one night and go, ah, now I got it. But if you set up right in the tight stuff right away, thinking I'm killing that deer tonight and you guess wrong and you blow them out of there, guess what? I don't care if it's big woods, Alabama, Iowa, Wyoming, that buck isn't coming back there probably. <laughs> if he knows he's, if he knows you've busted him, that's the end of it, and you've you've lost your chance. So it's always easier to go outside in than the opposite, than be too aggressive and then go, oops, you know, better go find another tree. Right. So talking about early season 
movement. You know, there's that there's that summer pattern, right? Just like you said, it's like a train track, man. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, and they are they're, they're, they are predictable. You know, I have, uh, some trail cameras right now that if I could start hunting tomorrow, I could probably go out and harvest one of my target bucks, but I can't, uh, because of, right. uh, you know, obviously Iowa doesn't open until October 1st, but other than food sources, you know, or I shouldn't say other than, you know, the testosterone kicking in, and the food sources changing. What are some other uh, other things that are happening in the woods or happening in, in in these hunting areas that may change a buck's early season pattern uh, from that summer or that early season food source? Well, you know, we talk a little bit about social dynamics, and uh, I think you know, I think bucks just um, you know, you get some bucks that are. Um, they're just shy and they're just kind of loners and they don't, maybe they don't want to fight. And so they're, you know, they're going to relocate to an area that's where they, where they encounter fewer deer. Um, similarly, there are bucks that, you know, man, they just kind of plant their feet and, um, they're just going to stay where they want to stay. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you gave me the liberty of including early October in this time period. And I killed one of my favorite bucks, not one of my best scoring bucks, but one of my favorite bucks the first week of October in Wisconsin. Um, and I shot him on a friend's farm, and he was already tagged out, so he gave me the liberty of hunting there. And he told me about this deer that was coming out to this bean field, you know, pretty pretty predictably. And he told he kind of knew where it was. And he said the problem is, is that you can't set up on that deer there because he said it's uh, well, it was bluff country, swirly winds. And he said you'll you'll just get busted. There's no no other way. And I said, well, what do we do? And he said you need to bring a decoy back there. And there's a stand, and it was about. Whew, 250 yards from where the crack where that buck was coming out he said just pop up in that stand i've got there and stick that decoy and face it right towards that crack and uh so that's what i did and anyway night went by nothing's happening little buck came out finally doing some fawn and there was about 20 minutes of shooting light left and all of a sudden this big dude came out in the crack right where my friend said he would fed for a minute or two and as soon as he got lifted his head up, I gave him a little grunt, and he looked up and he saw that decoy, and I shot him about two minutes later, nose to nose with that thing. He he was an aggressive deer. He saw another buck staring at him, and he just came trotting. Now we're, so we're talking, I think it was October 3rd, so we're talking three weeks from even what I consider good pre-rutting activity. So that right. social dynamic is always playing out in deer. I mean, you just... I was just lucky. I had an aggressive bully-type deer that didn't like other bucks looking at him. Right. And just for my own personal knowledge, was this a mature buck, like a, a three-, four-, five-year-old deer? He, you know, he was definitely three and might have been older. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, was a, he was a gnarly deer, and he was, it was really interesting. Uh, my friend had a photo. Uh, when I shot that buck, he had broke off the end of his main beam on one side and I was so excited watching him in watching him come in that I didn't I knew I just thought there was some junk over there I didn't even see it I I shot this deer and I'm like holy cow he's all he's all busted up and Ted had a picture of this buck only five days before and he was completely clean so he had been fighting that hard from you know so we're looking at velvet shed you know I'm just starting to get my first velvet shed bucks on trail camera so we're looking at First of September to the first of October, he fought hard enough to break his rack, and he was, 
you know, with if had he been complete, he'd have been oh, you know, one fifty ish. So right, and I and I think that that brings a huge point. You talk about social d- dynamics, and I think there are two times of the year where bucks become very aggressive, and, and we all know that the rut. Uh, brings out high testosterone, but the second that that velvet comes off, there is an instant like fighting for position. You know, I am the king. Okay, well, if you're the king, then I'm second, uh, then I'm third, and, and they have to figure that lineup out, and they do it by aggression and, and dominance. I could right? agree more. Yeah. So, and the, one thing that I noticed, and, and maybe you can uh, agree or disagree, but. I see that a lot on trail cameras, uh, on mineral stations yep. throughout the entire year where uh, a young buck will be there. The next picture of the series is a big buck coming in, kicks him off. He has his share of the mineral station and then comes and then the, the, the younger buck will come back and finish up. Right. No, so, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And, um, you know, it, it's one of the. It, in fact, uh, it, a couple it, just a couple years ago, we had a couple big bucks. Uh, there's a photo in the paper of a pair of bucks that had locked up, uh, found dead. You know, and it was uh, September 28th, I think. And you know, I, I brought that up to one of my buddies, and he, I'm like, you know, check this out. He's like, yeah, isn't it funny? He said everybody associates these knockdown fights with the rut and obviously they do occur then but your point is equally uh, equally true is that you know they the whole that whole social dynamic thing of losing your you know losing the velvet and you know that's another interesting thing you watch a bachelor group together in velvet and they will posture to each other and they'll you know you can tell a deer that wants to be dominant but you know they're not banging their antlers together they're just kind of doing it through body language and bumping each other but it's funny once that velvet comes off whole different deal a buck that have been kind of you know middleman for the whole summer is like hey all of a sudden, these things on top of my head are hard, and I'm going to use them. <laughs> and it's, uh, it gets pretty interesting. So, yeah, there, that, uh, there's a lot of jostling going around in September. So when, when that early season decoying technique worked for you, have you used it since? And have you found success doing early season decoying uh, in, in September and October? We... And uh, you know, my I tell you what, I'm going to give you an idea for uh, idea for making a million dollars, and, and all your listeners too. <laughs> Come up with a decoy that's quiet <laughs> and easy to maneuver and and, and bring around, uh, you know, to your stands. And I mean, you will knock the outdoor industry, at least the deer hunting industry, on its on its ear because you know I love the decoy, but right now the you know the decoys that are out there are, I mean, let's face it, they're kind of a pain to deal with. And so there, I have used decoys. You know, and and I have all the results have not been that you know that dramatic, but I can't tell you how many times I have been in a stand, sometimes hunting an individual deer, and thought, "Wow, would a decoy be the ticket right now?" I mean, this is perfect. It's open. I know I've got a deer that's mature that feels comfortable moving around in daylight, and uh, and um, you know, a lot of times, like I said, in early season. I don't set up in a tree the first time I set up on a buck. I sometimes don't, I set up in a tree where I, I don't think I'm going to kill him. I'm just going to watch him. I want to make sure what he, you know, that I know what he's doing before I move into, you know, for that 20-yard shot. But I remember one I killed uh, in, in 2012, 
and I said, I watched him the first night from an observation stand. I got a tip off from the farmer that he was visiting this corner of this field, and so I, I, I popped out into an observation stand, and, and he came out exactly where the farmer said he was going to, and I would have shot him that first night if I would have had a decoy out. I, I know I would have, because he came out, he was kind of facing my stand, and uh, I'm this was a this was an adult mature 160 class buck that just felt really he was he was just felt like he was the cock of the walk you know he was tough and bad and mean and um, I know if I would have had a decoy face him, I would have shot him that first night but I had to I had to wait a couple nights which was fine I, <laughs> I still got him <laughs> absolutely so the next thing I want to talk about is ag fields. Um, where, where you hunt up in Minnesota, is, are you in big timber country or are you in that uh, that timber ag split? Yeah, I'm in mixed. Uh, we're in bluff country, not too far from the Mississippi River. So, yeah, it's you, what we've got here, Dan, is largely um, our ridge tops are, are farmed. Uh, so, you have big fields of, you know, uh, beans, corn, or alfalfa. And then our uh, the ridges are heavily timbered, you know, three to 600 feet High and then on the valley bottoms again, more usually more ag unless it's a palm, you know, an undisturbed uh, wooded valley bottom. But usually, usually, so you're basically looking at you know egg on top, egg on the bottom. Okay, all right, yeah, that's somewhat similar to where I hunt in uh, Iowa. I, there's, um, I I have some terrain, but it's it's mostly uh, flat with fingers, right? Your typical Midwestern yep. type of uh, hunting. Now. Mm-hmm. Over the last two years, I have learned the what crop, like especially corn, can do to a a herd of deer. And what I mean by that is uh, cover, right? Um, yep. I, I recently found an ag field. It's 80 acres with a buffer strip that runs right through the middle of it. And there's two other little buffer strips. And you want to talk about deer bedding. Uh, this time of year, I walked through there to check trail cameras the other day and noticed, you know, and that's where all of my big mature buck pictures are at. It's in the middle of this standing cornfield and I couldn't find them for years. I couldn't find them until one day I was just like, you know what? Screw it. I got an extra trail camera. I'm going to put it right here. How, how much do you think standing crops affect early season deer movement? Oh, I think they can be a big, uh, a, a big deal. I mean, I, I interviewed a biologist once who called corn the tree of the prairie. And I, I was, that's always <laughs> stuck with me because, you know, it, it's really a pretty accurate statement. I mean, what, you know, living where you do in Iowa and where I do in Minnesota, I mean, there's a lot of acres of corn around and, you know, deer, uh, my, I, one of the, I know, many many years ago, one of my neighbors told me one of the coolest stories. He was he and I are very close buddies, and we hunt together. And he shot just a great buck in early September, just this time of same time of frame that we're talking about. And he had found what what we were talking about earlier. He found an oak dropping acorns right on the edge of a cornfield, and he said it was just torn up. He said a idiot could have figured out the deer sign there. It was just droppings everywhere, and a few little rubs and. You know, acorns all cracked to pieces, and he's like, man, i got to set up here. And so he sets his stand facing the timber, and he's like, I'm not seeing anything. What's going on? And about 20 minutes before dark, he hears this rustle, and it's in the corn. You know, he's facing the timber, and this this dandy buck walks out of the corn, 
to the to the oak tree, and he and he kills him, and he's like, ah, now I get it. <laughs> he's not right. betting in the timber; he's betting in the corn. So, yeah, it's a huge deal. But you know that when I when we, you had asked me to talk about early season hunting, that scenario just popped in my head because it's such a classic example of what we face in farm country is that you know the corn is the cover and um and a lot of times we find this great sign um and it's right on the edge of a cornfield and we've got to keep in mind that those deer probably aren't you know may not be coming from where we think they're coming from right so as a as opposed to a lot of guys are walking these field edges this time of year and there might be some scrapes along these field edges that they assume the deer are bedded in the timber when in all actuality they could be on the slightest terrain change in one of these cornfields. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and I love your comment about finding the, finding, you know, getting great trail camera pictures in these, you know, in these waterways and set aside areas. And I did, I did the exact same thing that you described and it was such an eye opener for me. I was running out of places to put trail cameras and I found this grass waterway that led, that cut two cornfields in two and led down into some, uh, you know, into a small block of timber. And I'm like, I don't know, this looks stupid, but I'm going to do it. And I set this camera up facing up that waterway and it was the first card pull. I was like, holy crap, Bethel, how have you been missing this all these years? You know, it's just buck after buck after buck, and I'm like, they are living out in the, you know? Yeah, and it, it just, it blows your mind because in this buffer strip, you know, for my strategy, it, I might get in there and hunt this year. You know, I have some other uh, issues. I got a baby coming here, so I doubt I'm able to hunt uh, anything serious. But these these cornfields, these standing crop fields where, you know, a scenario that me and you are, are talking about typically don't have very many trees, good quality trees um, in, in something like this. Do you think that a ground blind would be a good option in a, in a scenario like what we've discussed? I think it could be excellent depending on the setup. And I've also, I've hunted early season setups like this where I'll just, uh, I'll just tuck a couple rows into the corn, uh, and just sit on a stool and, um, and just clip a little shooting lane or two, just removing corn leaves. You know, I, I, all my neighbors here are farmers, so I don't mess with their, I don't mess with their income. I'm not <laughs> knocking down corn stalks, <laughs> but I'll, you know, I'll take enough leaves off of those stalks so that I can get a shot, you know, a shot right in front of me and maybe a couple of, you know, a quartering one way and then a quartering the other way, and I'll just tuck in a stool. And, and you think about it. I mean, you what you've done is created the same scenario as you've got if you're in a in a ground blind. You know, you've got nothing but dark cover behind you, and uh, that's always, in my opinion, the you know the best camel you can have is the stuff that's behind you that breaks up your silhouette. Well, what's what's I mean, you look into look into a cornfield and it's just you know two rows in, it's just a wall of black. So yeah. Um, I I believe in being really aggressive in situations. If you've got a deer that you you know if you think you've got a deer that's you know fairly predictable and walking down a waterway or set aside or the edge of a cornfield, I mean that's a I do that every time. You know it it can be frustrating because we all like to be up on a tree stand. You can see farther. You'll see more deer. But you know what would you rather do? See more deer or see the one that you want like 15 yards away? Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And and when you get Early, you know, early season people always say, um, you know, got to be careful. You don't want to spook that buck. You don't want to spook that buck. But 
if you're hunting in a scenario where you know that that corn or those beans are going to come out in the next 15 days or 30 days, do you feel at that point, because that the entire terrain at that point is going to change, do you feel that it's okay to be really aggressive and jump in after some of these some of these deer when, when you know yeah. that the crops are going to be coming out? Absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I, I do. I do agree with that. You know, it's, it's funny that guys will get so, they're not afraid to be aggressive during the rut. And sometimes guys, I think guys get too aggressive during the rut. You know, they should, they should let deer come to them because deer are moving so good now. But, you know, they're not, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're really afraid to get aggressive in early season. And sometimes that's when that buck is the most vulnerable. And as you say, uh, I, the thing about early season is, the clock is ticking because everything changes so fast, you know, like, so, you know, you got that early acorn drop and then that stops and then maybe something else, some other natural, natural food comes ripe and then they're on that. And then, then pretty soon the combines are firing up and the beans are coming out. And then a little bit later, the corn comes out and, you know, everything is just changing and so dynamic. And, you know, given the fact that, Hey, you know, I know how to play wind direction. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can not to spook a buck. I think what's wrong with getting aggressive? You're, the clock is ticking on that deer, and come the rut, you you may not know where that deer is. I mean, he's if he's a big mature buck in that area, he's probably breeding the first doe before every other buck does, and then he's off to the races. Who knows where he's going to be? But early season, you've got a shot at him. So I I'm all for swinging at him. Right. So early season. How how much of a role do you think does play in buck movement? Let's say before October fifteenth. Um, I kind of see. I still think bucks are kind of in that loner phase. At you know uh, up to that the time that you mentioned. Um, you know they're. I mean. You know, obviously, any time a doe pops in the heat, a buck's going to breed as soon as his velvet's off. He doesn't care if it's November 15th or September 15th. But for the most part, I think they're kind of, um, you know, I think they're kind of separate at that time of year. They don't, uh, they're not really thinking that way. And, you know, one one thing that I noticed when I've used decoys in early season um, is, you know, if you use a buck decoy, most does will avoid it just because they don't—they just don't want to be around bucks, you know. Um, whereas if it's a doe decoy, they'll come running up to it, you know. So who's that? I've never seen her before. So that kind of tells me that you know there's kind of a little separation going on. And um, so yeah, I think uh, you know until now, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, one of the most ferocious scrapes I ever saw in my entire life, I found October 8th, which is really really early. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, I thought somebody had made a mock scrape or two out there. I mean, what I did was found a series of three scrapes together, again, first week of October, and I mean, it just reeked in there, and I was like, I thought somebody was messing with me. And I looked at it, and I'm like, well, this, this is a big deer in here, and I couldn't sit that area that night, but as I was walking out, I could glass it, and I saw just this monster eight-point there. And um, anyway, I put my dad in that, in that area the next night, and he, he missed a shot at that deer, and all I could... Uh, all I can think is happening is that, a, you know, a doe cycled in early, you know, a month earlier than normal, and which makes perfect sense. I mean, they don't, they'll, they'll cycle in a month later than normal. Uh, why can't some of them be 30 days early? So, right. But for the most part, I would say that, you know, uh, the does aren't a huge factor at that in that early season time frame. Right, right. 
So let's talk about sign just a, a little bit because you brought it up. Um, does is sign is is sign like a big rub or a scrape? Let's say on a traditional place like a field edge or on top of a ridge, like say a rub line, is that something to get excited about if you find it scouting early season? Yeah, I'm always excited about that. In fact, the earlier I find buck sign, the more excited I am. And, and here's why I think that is, is that, um, you know, a yearling buck, that first year he has antlers, he doesn't really have a clue why they're there. And, and research has proven this. They've done studies on, you know, rub frequency and when it happens. And um, what they found was is that, you know, mature bucks basically start rubbing as soon as their velvet falls. They're, they're already, and that varies from deer to deer. Some deer rub like crazy and others don't rub as much. But as a rule, mature bucks start rubbing first. And the little guys they found, these researchers found, is that, you know, it took them about a month to figure out, you know, what those things were on top of their heads. <laughs> and they, then they started rubbing. And I'm sure a lot of it is, you know, repeating behaviors that they see other deer do and da-da-da-da. But I tell you what, um, you know, that one thing my friend Tom the Logger from northern Wisconsin taught me was, you know, if you if his magic combination is, A, hot, hot oak, you know, acorns dropping that the deer are using, and then a rub, of any size, he says it makes no difference. And we, I mean, we see a rub on a pencil thin tree, and we're like, "Yep, here we go, we got a big one." And that's played out more more than I've seen. Now, I have seen rubs on really big trees early, but not very often. But I, but when I see rubs on small trees, uh, especially again, this is early, right after you know the week or two after velvet shed, I'm I'm confident I've got a deer that's you know you know he may only be a two year old, but he might be six, you know. Right. Right. So will that get you, will that get you in the timber? Um, because we all know that, yeah, weather patterns could play a role in getting a big buck on its feet early season, but for the most part, you know, deer movement, especially mature buck movement is, this is my opinion. I say it is more controlled by uh, the rut and when does begin to cycle as it is weather patterns, let's say even, even into late October, you know, a mature buck who's been through the rut a couple times knows that, you know, Hey, maybe there's probably no need to get out of my bed before dark, uh, even up into the, the mid to late twenties of October. Mm-hmm. So do you think that it's worth going into a spot with good good sign, even though there's a chance that you will bust the deer or the deer will catch your scent after you leave because it's still early and that sign was made at night. Um. Well, you know that's a great question, and it's uh, again I I think it depends on on a couple things. One the the scenario itself i mean some of let's face it you know some of these big old deer are just fat and lazy and they don't move very much and so if you find their feeding sign you might be looking at a deer that's bedding less than 100 yards away and sometimes you know significantly less than 100 yards away and it might be a situation where you go you know what i might just have to wait until this buck gets a little more active because i stand a really really good chance of bumping this deer and letting him know that I'm getting hunted, uh, that he's getting hunted. Uh, but conversely, I mean, there, you know, there are scenarios where like, 
hey, I, and I looked at him like, I can get in and out of here, and I think I can do it without, you know, without uh, spooking anything. Um, you know, one thing that we've done uh, here in farm country is if we get one of these field edge setups where, you know, and this, I mean, this happens from September all the way to January, but, you know, you, you hunt an edge, and, you know, what's happening as the afternoon hunt goes by, I mean, the deer are pouring in or they're coming in, there's, you get the more the closer you get the dark, the more deer you have coming, and you wind up with you know you, a lot of a lot of deer by your stand, and sometimes your target buck, and you got to get out of there without letting them know you're there. And so we've uh, my neighbors and I all hunt together, uh, or you know, uh, you know, in, in similar areas, and so we'll just you know text each other, have a system worked out that you know, hey, I got deer by my stand, can you come get me? And we'll if we can do it, we'll drive as close as possible to the to the stand tree and just bump the deer off and get the guy out of there and and then the whole thing happens again tomorrow because you know farm country deer i mean what's a pickup truck to them it's like watching a bird fly over right and that that kind of brings up a cool story um i was hunting on the corner of i was hunting on a a, cor- a fence corner and mm-hmm. behind me was big timber then i had standing corn and then i had um a a crp field and on the back side of this crp field uh was another standing cornfield and i watched or you know i I set up running gun set up right on that corner and i I set up there mostly as an observation stand but there was some good sign along this uh cornfield that was close to me and Mm -hmm. i got put up the binoculars after i got set up and just was scanning this uh scanning the crp field just scanning it scanning it just you know hoping i could see some antlers you know amongst all the grass and and i did i i saw a a buck it was a three-year-old uh that i had been watching from the previous year and a combine starts coming and it comes and it comes and it comes and it comes and that combine was i'm gonna say somewhere uh, between 20 and 30 yards away from that buck and he did not even move the entire <laughs> night right didn't jump him at all so that will tell you right there just because a combine or a truck or a four-wheeler comes down your uh you know comes your way that doesn't mean your hunt is over in the least exactly yeah i yeah. i couldn't agree more and you know, I was talking to some, uh, I did a seminar down at the Illinois Deer Classic just uh, a few weeks ago, and I, we were talking about this very thing, and I said, you know, I'm a big believer in matching the normal. I mean, whatever the deer hear, that, you know, and what they're used to seeing, that's, that's you know, it, just because it bugs us to hear, uh, you know, perfect example is a chainsaw. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, there's this guy over there cutting wood, and there's no way deer are going to come by me. And as a matter of fact, a really good friend of mine from Illinois had this very scenario play out where it was late season, so of course, you know, you naturally assume that deer are on pins and needles, which they usually are. He was hunting, uh, not making this up, 180 class 8 point, mainframe 8, with a bunch of junk on his head. Anyway, was waiting for this deer, kind of had an idea where he was betting, and uh, was sitting up in the tree with his... Uh, uh, with a cameraman and uh, all of a sudden this guy started a chainsaw up on the other side of the field and my buddy was like that's it you know hunts <laughs> over so he sat and listened to that thing for about 20 minutes and then he said that's it i'm done he bailed and his friend that was sitting <laughs> in a stand across the field said yep 
20 minutes before dark, guess what walked right under your tree? So that buck's oh, heard that chainsaw God. a million times. He doesn't care. You know? <laughs> oh, boy. I bet your buddy's still kicking his own butt after that. Yeah, he is, because that deer's still walking. <laughs> I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was like a year. Yeah, I think that was two years ago, and that deer's still alive. Oh, my God. That's a big eight-pointer. I love big eights. Yeah, he is. Yeah. All right, so I want to – I got you for about 10 more minutes. And I want to, I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation here. Okay. You can only hunt until October 15th this year. All right. You can't hunt the rut. You have to make something happen early season. And I'm going to blindfold you. I'm going to drop you off at a farm. You know, your typical ag timber split farm, like we both hunt, but it, but you don't know this farm. Okay. What are you going to do to try to harvest a mature buck? early season what when are you dropping me off <laughs> like what what's the date <laughs> like right let's now just, yeah let's just say it's right now today and you have let's say 10 days 15 days to get it done okay um well the first thing i'm going to do is i am going to you've you've been a great post and you've dropped a, an aerial photo for me haven't you <laughs> but even if you haven't the first you thing i'm going to do is right? i'm going to walk the edges i'm just going to i am going to get up high as high as i can and i just want to get the lay of the land i want to see how the farm lays where i think wind directions are going to be you know uh and i can start formulating some basic thoughts about where i think deer might bet on um, where they might feed um, then I'm going to spend the middle of, the, of days uh, walking the edges and just kind of getting an idea of where deer, you know, how they use the land. Do they, you know, walk through this waterway? Where do they enter a field? Um, you know, where are some thick points for bedding areas and et cetera? And then in the evenings, I'm gonna, I'm just going to glass fields if I can, if I can get up in a high spot and just get an idea where deer are coming from. Um, that's the first thing. But I tell you what, right now I'm a uh, well, our Minnesota season opens in uh, nine days, and I've got a farm right now that I haven't been on since last fall, and uh, I'll bet you if there's a good deer on there, and this is no bragging on me, this is just because, uh, you know, of what deer are like. If there's a good deer on that farm, I bet I could walk that farm right now, assuming he's shed his velvet, and I could get an idea of where he, what he's doing. You know, is he is he coming out to alfalfa? Has he found an oak tree? Um, but again, I'm really big on the outside in thing. I'm going to start really non-aggressive. And I'm going to work my way slowly. You know, if I think I need to get a little more aggressive, get into the timber. But uh, I will. But I, you know, I'm going to start back. I'm going to let those deer do what they want to do, and then just try to take advantage of it. Right. I'm going to look for oak trees because uh, acorn drop is happening right now, and uh, yeah, I just. Well, I was just checking trail cams the other day, and I kept hearing this ping, 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 and I'm like, what is that? Well, it was a white oak dropping acorns right on my truck, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Your truck yeah. is doing your oak, oak scouting for you. Right. So anyway, I'm going to find those early season food sources, and I'm going to look for rubs no matter what the size, and then I am going to start picking my stand trees, and yeah, it's going to be fun. I like it. Where are you going to take me? <laughs> Let's just hypothetically, since we're it's all hypothetically, the best farm in Iowa. The best farm in Iowa, yeah. I, and I do get to hunt in mid September, not wait till the October first opener. <laughs> yeah, you you, I, you know what? You can even hunt it early if you want. Hopefully, you don't get busted. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm just teasing you. Um, right. I tell you what, you know, I don't care where you are in the Midwest or. 
I tell you, the, the vast majority of whitetail range. The West is maybe the only, you know, the only exception. If you are onto acorns, if you can figure out where your oaks are and your preferred oaks, I mean, that is just a huge deal. I talk to my friends in Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, up in the northeast, and it's, I mean, Oaks is where it's at. And then if you've got a good acorn year, like you mentioned, I mean, you're you're smart enough to know this is a good acorn year. A lot of guys can't figure that out till it's too late, you know. Oh, the acorns are good, or oh, the acorns stink this year. I mean, you should know that right now. How many, right. you know, how good acorn crop is there going to be and what trees are, you know, what trees are dropping them, and your species, you know, white oaks first, they drop earlier and are preferred by deer, and then, red, you know, everything after that. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, I a learned, huge, uh, that's a huge chunk of knowledge. Right. Well, one thing I learned, I took away from this conversation was a deer won't eat a, right, like right now, won't eat an acorn with a cap still on it. That, that, that's... No, that, I've, I found I that happen uh, over and over. I mean, you take a yeah. capped acorn and... And slice into a knife or and usually they're wormy or rotten. Man, that's crazy. That's all, that's good intel though. That's awesome. Something I can definitely take into the woods. The last question that I want to ask you before we part our ways today is public land hunters, right? Obviously, um, I'm blessed to hunt some fairly low pressure property. Um, I'm not sure about w- what you are, but let's talk a little bit about just very high level. Some advice that you could give for a public land hunter. Uh, who uh, is trying to go out and get it done early season as well? Yeah, um, well, I've, I've done quite a bit, I guess, over the years. I, I shot my first buck on public land uh, in Iowa, believe it or not. I was 18 years old. I was 17 years old. Anyway, and I've done quite a bit in, in the years since. And, um, you know, you've got to give credit to a guy who knows his way around public land, and I don't, I don't claim to be any expert there, but guys that kill bucks on public land consistently know two things. They know how deer behave on those places, and they know how hunters behave. Um, and that second part can take some study. Um, and so what, what, what I look for is places that I think are going to receive the least amount of human intrusion as possible. I mean, you're, obviously it's public. There's no guarantees. You know, um, but, you know, are there places... That I want, that I'm willing to go. That maybe uh, Joe Lunchbucket doesn't want to. You know, does he have to walk in, uh, you know, a mile with a stand on his back? Does he have to cross a river? Does he have to hike up a big bluff? You know, a lot of hunters will not do that, and I will, and you know, a lot of a lot of other hardcore guys are willing to do that. So, you know, you once you uh, and, and it's amazing. Um, uh, I actually, I have a seminar that I do called Hunting Small Tracks, and I talk about hunting public land, and, and uh, guys kind of scratch their head like, what does that have to do with small tracks? And I say it has everything to do with it because you can take a 500-acre chunk of public ground, and there might be two stands on there that I'm ready, I'm willing to hunt. So I'm looking for those little micro spots where, you know, A, there's the deer, and B, there's no hunters. So, um it's kind of a it's kind of a tightrope, uh, and yeah, nobody says it's easy. But that's why you know you got a buddy or a friend you know that can kill good deer consistently on public land. He's he's got it figured out. He's a, he's a good hunter. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Scott, man, I tell you what, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and share some wisdom with us. And uh, let me be the first to wish you uh, good luck this upcoming season. 
Oh, man, it's been an honor, and uh, I was very flattered that you asked me, Dan, and I tell you what, I I hope you kill a monster, and more importantly, I hope you welcome a wonderful little baby into this world pretty soon. That's the most exciting thing that can happen to a person. Oh, yeah. Number three, man. Uh if you ever if you ever see me again, man, my my beard's gonna be all gray. I, I'm starting to lose my hair. Man, the kids are awesome, but they do some damage too. <laughs> I had a friend the other day say, "Buddy, your sideburns are all gray," and I said, "I have 18 year old twins. I've earned every one of these things." <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, good luck, brother. You too, man. I appreciate it so much, and uh, let me know when you get that big one. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Scott for coming on the podcast and uh, talking early season hunting strategy with us. Really appreciate him taking time out of his day. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, Be sure to keep tuning in. Please go subscribe to this podcast on whatever form you're downloading in it from, I guess. whether that's Stitcher or BeanPod or Podbean, um, iTunes, the app, go download the app, and uh, you should be able to uh, have these podcasts delivered straight to you uh, as soon as they launch. A huge shout-out to all the partners of this podcast, Exodus Trail Cameras, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Bighorn Outfitters, Deer Lab, Ripcord Arrow Rests, Wasp Archery, Gearhead Archery, Ozonics, and I think that's it. Other than that, check me out on all forms of social media Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, you know, I do the, the live Facebook feeds just kind of as a, a blog slash update. And uh, please go sign up to become a member of the National Deer Alliance. It's free and they send you a ton of information on how you can be uh, a a more well-rounded outdoorsman as far as uh, deer are concerned. Uh, You get educated and then uh, you you can be a part of the movement. Other than that, guys, I I think I say other than that a lot. Other than that, something I need to work on. But this podcast is over. My kids are crying. My wife is super pregnant, so her fuse is really short. I really want to say thank you to her, my wife, for having enough patience for me to knock one of these out when I have to knock them out, do the editing and upload them. She's a trooper. And uh, if you guys are going to be anywhere near a tree, or thinking about hunting this hunting season because, you know, season's here. Wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.